Don't just think about what it is. Think about what it means. It's terribly important, even if it's uncomfortable, because we could always do things better. It's terribly important to be honest and unsentimental in our reflections and our recollections of what we've done. It's fabulous to answer questions like these. I wish everybody had a chance to answer questions like these because work today, no matter what you do, is often all-consuming and you just get buried in the details of delivery and in the details of the grinding operation that you're part of. To a load of BS, the behavioral science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. We've been away for a few weeks, and today we are back and firing with the final part of my mini series with the wonderful Dave Blakely, executive VP at Venture Builder Mac 49, talking innovation, design, and creativity in organizations. Now, in this episode, we talk about risk taking, storytelling, how we live in partnership with AI and the invention of Scrabble, and plenty more. Now, by the way, last Sunday, the 5th of March, I had the pleasure of interviewing the inspiring Bill Browder, Jewish Book Week in London. A quite fabulous nine-day extravaganza of talks and discussions on, well, you guessed it, it's in the title. Uh, We had a packed hall of 420 people listening to Bill's gripping, tragic, and uplifting story through the lens of his book's Red Notice, and Freezing Order, all about the murky world of Russian theft, corruption, and murder. I will share that recording as soon as it arrives, but you can hear my podcast with Bill from last year on whichever platform you follow me on. So just a little FYI on that. Now, back to someone equally as inspiring and uplifting. It's Dave Blakely. Dave, welcome back to a load of BS on Best Behaviour for part three, our final instalment of BSing together. It's great to be here, Daniel. Fantastic. Great to see you again. Now, last week, you gave us an insight into the busy and highly hospitable social scene at the Blakeleys. Now, at Mark 49, I know that you like to do a who matters most exercise at the start of any new venture creation to understand who the key stakeholders might be in the story to come. And in your story, Dave, beyond Mrs. B, the other two critical protagonists are surely your parents. Now, hopefully there'll be greater insights from me today than that. But going back to your roots in Los Angeles, your folks, both high school humanities teachers, inspired your love of science, allowing tanks of salamanders and fish in the house and ham radio antennas on the roof. So, I mean, were the young Blakeleys an outpost of the CIA under the cover of an aquatic center? Or, you know, what was going on? Paint us a picture of that childhood, if you will. My two unassuming humanities teacher parents, both teaching at good uh, Los Angeles high schools, I think the most valuable thing they did for me, and I think the, the most wonderful thing you can do for your kids is to encourage them, irrespective of the direction that they choose to take in their lives, just give them that 100% encouragement and affirmation. That's what my folks did. Now, they meant well. The fact is, when I showed an interest in science and math, neither of which they had any understanding of. In fact, when I had some trouble with algebra when I was very young, my parents had to hire a tutor because they didn't know the first thing about math. That was fine. You know, when I showed some interest in science and math and engineering, my well-meaning parents worked out with a friend of theirs to bring me to his office at this massive and frankly awful defense contractor in Southern California. And I walked in 
and their friend, whose name was Jack, proudly showed me around his office and where he worked because he was happy to hear that I was interested in being an engineer one day and my parents had worked all this out. I thought it was the most terrible thing I had ever seen. It was a bunch of men sitting around smoking, typing reports, wearing shoes that looked really uncomfortable and ties that looked like they were choking them. I had absolute cubicle fright. Just goes to show sometimes even well-meaning parents try to do well by you, give you experiences that are meaningful because they scare you away for something. Eventually, it turned out that there were much cooler jobs in Silicon Valley that I was willing to take. But I'll tell you what, I had some serious cubicle fright in my first exposure to corporations and engineering. Yeah, it reminds me of my time working at Barclays, actually, but Barclays Bank, although that had nothing to do with the influence of my parents. It was purely my own fault. But I think I've since repented. Now, today, I think we should think about what are the big problems to solve as we try to encourage more disruptive thinking and maximize our creative potential. I think we must ask ourselves one of the things we must ask ourselves, are we taking enough risks? Because when established organizations innovate or seek change, are they too safety orientated? Is their primary goal not to be embarrassed before coming up with something brilliant? Let's start with that waterfall of questions. Sure, this is a terribly important question. And risk taking is something I've been thinking about ever since cubicle fright from interviewing for an engineering job brought me to Japan, where I took a one-year contract working for a consulting firm in Tokyo just because it was something different and interesting. In the same way that you never really understand the language that you speak until you studied a foreign language, you never really understand the culture that you're part of and how much you're part of it until you live somewhere else. And one of the things that was so remarkable to me when I worked with various clients, Hitachi, Nippon Shario, and so on, in a lot of ways, the people I was working with were very relatable to me, frankly. We both had similar engineering backgrounds and so on. But one of the profound differences was to a person, these folks at large Japanese companies told me that failure, any sort of failure, any sort of unsuccessful endeavor would follow them for the rest of their careers like a black cloud. That was a huge issue, especially because back when I was living in Japan, these large companies had lifetime employment. Typically, you were with one employer for your entire career. It never even occurred to me that when people who had been with a startup that had failed interviewed for a job in Silicon Valley, which happens all the time, it's unremarkable. The startup has failed for reasons that startups fail. Maybe the founding team didn't get along. Maybe they timed the market wrong. Maybe they timed emerging technology wrong. But the fact is, as long as you learn something, as long as the startup to begin with was well put together with a good value proposition, that's certainly absolutely no badge of shame. And so I've been thinking a lot about risk-taking ever since. I've been trying to make observations about risk-taking ever since. And what I can tell you is this. Today, the business world is more enlightened, and there's more of a consciousness that risk-taking is terribly important. But I still don't think the world understands that Risk-taking is not a lever that you can somehow pull. Hiring strategy, for example, is a lever you can pull. Risk-taking is not a lever you can pull in your culture or in your organizational structure. It's a consequence. It's a result. And it's enabled by other elements of the culture, such as embrace of agile technology, training program engineers to structure programs in a series of agile sprints, onboarding that you provide to your employees, and so on. I think historically sticking broadly with the status quo doesn't lose you your job. Taking a risk might do. And we need in some way a failure safety net in place and the right incentives for people to make them willing, I guess, to take a chance on looking a bit stupid now and again. But 
it's not as common as we might think or we might like. Absolutely. On the flip side, sometimes any business trend goes too far. It's too bad that there aren't separate words for appropriate versus inappropriate failure. Look, there's one other thing we need to say about failure, which is, as happens so often with trends, you can swing the pendulum too far. I've actually seen failure and the notion of experiments being used as an excuse for underperformance or just straight up careless errors. I was very hard on one of my electrical engineers a few years back when a printed circuit board came in with some failures where the chip didn't fit properly on the board because some failures in checking before the board was ever fabricated just weren't observed. He tried to excuse that as a failure or an experiment. The fact is, you got to think about both inappropriate and appropriate failures. And inappropriate failures are failures of carelessness or lack of attention to detail. And those are simply not excusable. Yeah, I think that's a really useful definition. And I think there's a sort of a tension and a healthy balance between encouraging a culture or tolerance for risk-taking and experimentation, but it must be done with high discipline, just to use a word we used last week. So I think that's an important balance, because I think if you just sort of give license to people to experiment and to run free, it needs a kind of a constraint around it to make it work. And of course, last week, we talked a lot about leaders and discipline. I want to ask you, do you know who Alfred Butts is? The name isn't familiar, other than the fact that I'm sure three-year-olds love to make fun of it. That's a good start. Who is Alfred Butts? I'm not about to tell a silly joke, but why I mention him is because I think he is a great exemplar of persistence and discipline. And if you'll indulge me, let me just share a quick story, which I think you'll like. I think you can tell me what you think. But Butts (laughs) was an American architect who found himself unemployed at the start of the Great Depression in 1930, and he fancied inventing a new game. So he set himself his own brief and did his own intensive market research. And so he grouped the games market into three main categories. There were games of chance, games of skill, and then word games. And he saw that many games combined the first two, but not all three attributes. And so he saw that this was his opportunity, right? The gap in the market. And so Butts set about inventing a game which encompassed all three categories. Now, talking of discipline, every day he studied the front page of the New York Times to count which letters were used the most. Now, E was the most frequent, so he gave it the value of one. And conversely, Q and Z were least used and so held higher values. Maybe you see where this one's going a little. But then what he did, he cut up small tiles, writing letters and values on them. Now, he struggled for a long time to sell the game. But eventually, in 1952, with persistence, he got a bit lucky. And the president of Macy's found Scrabble on holiday, loved it, and bought it up in bulk. And now today, two million plus boards are sold every year. And I think the lesson here is that with discipline and hard work come fortune, but also that discipline is definitively not the enemy of creativity. Rather, discipline can really facilitate creativity. And so let me twist this in your direction. And I wonder if you find in the desire to race to build the bones of a fundable business in 12 weeks at Mark 49, in our rush to put quiz on Scrabble's treble word score, there also comes a real need for patience. There is absolutely a need for a certain type of patience, even as we race to bring a new product to market. And where patience is most important is in the early stages, when we're going through those critical early stage interpretation activities of where the opportunity are. Let me share a quote from T.S. Eliot that I've always loved. You know, sometimes I see teams working on startups racing through 
interviews with people, doing them in a relatively perfunctory or mechanical way and following process. The problem with just following process and not having the discipline and the patience to think deeply about what you're learning is this. The poet T.S. Eliot once said, we had the experience, but miss the meaning. An approach to meaning restores the experience, but in a different form. Now, he was writing four quartets when he said that. He was talking about the human condition, but I'll tell you, Daniel, this applies equally well to the patience that is required to actually think through what it is we're developing. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to extend out our incubation process for a longer period. What it does mean is that we need to find the patience to get away from the distractions that is such a typical part of our life in the 21st century and actually do some deep thinking about where the opportunities are. There's something about the butts and the scrabble story, which I really like. The idea that the guy hacked away and struggled for over 20 years before he got his moment. But then, obviously, it really turned for him. And I think it's just a great example of how hard work, discipline, and persistence. I mean, there's something of a post-rationalization there because there is some survivorship bias in the story and probably plenty of others similar on the scrap heap. But I like the idea of someone sifting through the front page of the tiny print New York Times every day, just building up his bank of knowledge to develop his idea. Absolutely. If we think about Mr. Butts creating Scrabble, what we see is discipline is all the more important in less defined, more ambiguous endeavors. Now, Six Sigma work for high accuracy manufacturing is terribly important. I'm not devaluing it. But the fact is, the discipline of Six Sigma work is asserted on you by the rules of Six Sigma. Whereas for Mr. Butts, no one told him how to create a new board game. What he was doing was profoundly ambiguous. That's why it was all the more important for him to assert process and discipline on himself, scouring the New York Times for the most commonly used letters. Absolutely. But let me actually flip the discipline coin and ask you about daring leaders, maybe ill-disciplined ones, but who put their neck on the line to be different, to challenge orthodoxy, the way they talk to customers, maybe, the way they design and market products, the way they build teams. I mean, who for you encapsulates that spirit really well? I think we can be inspired by so many global business leaders, but daring is particularly common in Silicon Valley. Look, we can be skeptical or we can be encouraging towards the shift from Facebook to Meta, where Facebook's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has focused entirely on something that is barely even a technology. Meta and metaverse today is more of a concept. The fact is, we have no idea what that's going to mean ultimately for the share price. Right now, the naysayers seem to have the upper hand. I have to say, I want to put it out to the world. I really admire Mark Zuckerberg for his daring in essentially noticing that slowly the value of his social media product was eroding and that he needed to move aggressively into new areas. Again, another person who's extremely controversial these days, Elon Musk. You cannot beat Elon Musk for being incredibly daring on everything from how to bore tunnels to new frontiers of neuroscience to incredible cars and incredible rockets. 
I mean, what's also in common with both of those entrepreneurs is they're both sociopaths, arguably, but I guess they're both also good examples of significant risk takers, talking of which. Now, talking of entrepreneurs and switching tack slightly, one of the things that separates the great entrepreneurs, I think, from the good ones is the ability to tell a good story. Now, Mark 49, in my view, is very strong at teaching what we might call the dark arts of presentation and pitching, telling stories which move and persuade beyond just the facts on the page. And I want to get your take on this, but also, if I may, I'm going to share another little story with you, which I love, which I think is really highlights what good presentation is all about. And I think you're going to appreciate it. It's a story which Dave Trott brought to my attention in his book, Predatory Thinking. And it's about two young filmmakers who posed as high-end restaurateurs at a major food expo in Europe. And they told everyone that the food that they were exhibiting was an organic competitor to fast food joints like McDonald's. Now, in reality, they would bought their food from McDonald's on the way to the expo and disguised it with toothpicks. So they cut up their chicken nuggets and Big Macs into small pieces. They stuck toothpicks in each piece. Then they placed the pieces on plates for the high-end food experts to taste. And of course, the experts said, well, the food was nice and firm. It had a good bite. They said it rolled off the tongue, rolled around the tongue like a fine wine and so on and so forth. And they were then asked to compare it directly to McDonald's. And they said it was more pure than McDonald's. They said it had a lot more taste as it was organic. You know, they said it's better for you. That's why it has a richer taste. So the food was a success or rather the toothpicks were because what's so striking is that it seems that it was the presentation that changed what they thought not the content. So in fact, the experts were tasting the presentation, not the food. And I think the lesson here is that if you want your idea to get bought, don't always expect it to be judged purely on what you think are its merits. So my question to you is then when you're in presentation mode, how do you think about winning over your high-end experts? The first thing we need to remind ourselves is that Humans fundamentally by nature respond deeply to stories and to narratives. That's timeless. Technology will change, demographics will shift, social economic frameworks will continue to change over time, but humans have always and will always respond to stories and to narratives. So what I respond to the best, for example, as an angel investor, before joining Mach 49, I was quite an active angel investor, is a narrative. Now, the narrative about a new business must knit together all the things I'm looking for. The narrative must knit together answers to questions like, exactly what problem am I solving? Who is my customer? Why should I believe in the team? Why should I be excited about the market? But the most powerful pitches, without exception, knit together all those facts into some kind of narrative, often a narrative where a relatable persona is facing problems that will later be solved by whatever solution is is being offered. I absolutely buy that. Humans, we naturally respond to stories. When I think about the McDonald's and the food story, I think it makes me reflect that we need to think harder in advance also about what is the language that our judges, whoever we're presenting to understand, rather than just the language of the world that it might function in. I wondered whether you think that Mark 49 could take on the present your ideas on toothpicks philosophy to try and squeeze maximum creativity into the show as well as the tell. I think table stakes for the best presentation these days, that just the price of entry is an effective narrative. Without an effective narrative, you don't have anything. But to your point, Daniel, actually involving your audience in the narrative, involving them actively in some way, touching their hearts, that's really our stretch goal. That's what makes all the difference. You know, hand tools used by mechanics 
is not necessarily an emotional field. And years ago, working on a program for Snap-on Tools, which is one of the huge tool manufacturers in the U.S., we set up an exhibit. We rented a space, we had very dark rooms, and we set up an exhibit to show Snap-on how certain redesign of tools, particularly advanced tools for car diagnostics, could make a huge difference in the life of mechanics and could completely change the way people thought of Snap-on. And these pretty buttoned-down executives, multiple executives were crying at the end of the presentation. It just meant so much. It set sort of a new bar for the kind of impact we always need to seek on our clients and on our partners. Now, thinking about the future of things, I'm keen to get your view on the collision of technology and creativity, because technology, of course, not only allows us to do lots of things faster, more conveniently, and with greater accuracy, but it also challenges our existence as we know it. For example, the dual power and dangers of AI are openly discussed, right? I mean, it can complete tasks at volume and speed that human brain power will never get close to, but it also lacks context. It lacks color, creativity, and nuance. It's a machine, after all, loaded with the biases that we feed it. And as you just touched on in turn, when we're talking about Zuckerberg and Meta and the Metaverse, you know, some of us are talking naively now about alternative realities, hybrid existences where we spend time as an avatar in what we conceptually call this thing, the Metaverse. Because at heart, as human beings, we are creative and communal creatures. And so for all the benefits of technology, do you think distractions like TV, social media, internet, smartphones, video games, turn us into automatons, constrain us and hold us back in unnatural ways? Or maybe you think they unleash our creativity? So let's unpack your question into two parts, Daniel. Let's talk a little bit about AI and creativity. And then let's also talk about our constant state of distraction. Now, let's start with AI and AI's impact on creativity. The first thing that I want to point out about artificial intelligence is artificial intelligence will cause at least as profound an impact to the way we all work and live and play as did the original internet revolution. Look, I was lucky enough to be working in Mountain View right down the block from Netscape during the dawn of the internet age. Yes, I'm that old. And the fact is, I saw TCPIP, which we recognized very early to be a technology, a foundational technology that would power the internet and would profoundly change the way we all lived and worked and played. Now I look at artificial intelligence, I look at advanced data analytics, I look at machine learning. I can tell you positively that those technologies will create at least as profound a revolution in our lives as did internet technologies. These technologies are a perfect example of human machine teaming at its most effective. What we need to get past is the idea of artificial intelligence replacing humans on a cognitive level. Now, on some level, there may be one-for-one job replacements. For example, in 10 to 20 years, we may see taxi drivers, unfortunately or fortunately, being replaced one-for-one by autonomous vehicles. But as you get into creative disciplines, what we're talking about is the need for a much more sophisticated view of artificial intelligence as cognitive prosthetics. We need to come up with intelligent strategies to team humans with artificial intelligent entities where much of the rote work, and by rote, I mean anything that is actually definable, gets done in the future by AI systems. But the creative work, the awareness, the intuition, the sensitivity 
to tiny patterns that are just barely perturbing the surface of our world, that for many, many years will remain the exclusive domain of human beings who can work very effectively in partnership with artificial intelligence. Now, the second part of your question is a rather different story. The second part of your question is about access to information. There, we've got a very, very different story. Smartphones being used as a brave new world type of opiate to constantly distract yourself from deep challenges you have at work or profound challenges you have at home. That's absolutely terrible. And to maintain our pace of creative advance, we have to figure out ways to get back to more of that extended focus, extended face-to-face group focus on big challenges away from smartphones, away from social media, and away from constant distractions. I think we need to think about how to engineer creativity more effectively. And it's very clear from both 30 years of experience from me working in the field and also abundant academic research, it's very clear that creativity and innovation and venture creation really requires two things. It requires information, which our smartphones and our laptops are very good at delivering, and it requires inspiration. And inspiration, the single strongest source of inspiration is from loose and freewheeling conversations with other human beings where you're not staring at your smartphone and you're not constantly distracted by social media, but instead are listening actively and completely present in the conversation that you're having. It is essential that we continue to hone and polish those skills of deep focus, active listening, and deep concentration in order to continue to develop remarkable breakthroughs in science, in business, in technology. So tell me, what has Zoom subtracted from the creative process for you? Zoom has been fantastic. I mean, what would we have done through the pandemic without Zoom? It is an absolutely amazing tool. But the fact is, so much of business today is about effective communication. And so much of communication comes from the subtle, nonverbal cues that as human beings, we're all equipped to pick up from body language, from subtle nuance. And the limitation of technology today, such as Zoom, is that you still don't quite pick those up. Hard to read the room, for sure. I was going back to the first part of your answer, we're talking about AI and data. And I'm interested in how technology, but specifically more data will play a greater role in behavioral science. Because you know, if nudging is the lingua franca of behavioral science, I wonder then whether our obsession with it can go too far. Or, or rather, like, let me put it this way, do you see a fault line between human beings living approximately healthy lives, whether we mean medically, financially, or otherwise, and being optimized to the edge of insanity as our devices become smarter and know increasingly more about us? Of course, that's a very real threat. Look, if we don't see technology as both a tremendous benefit and also potentially a huge threat, we're just not being honest to the course of history. Look at the development of quantum physics has allowed us GPS satellites, but also laid the seeds for nuclear weapons. So I think a general answer to your question is we need to consider any technology like a knife. A knife can be used for great good in the hands of a surgeon and can be used to do terrible things in the hands of some homicidal maniac. We need a Magna Carta of artificial intelligence. A Hult Business School professor named Olaf Groth has taken important initial steps towards creating a universal statement of human rights 
as regards artificial intelligence, which is marvelous. But we're at a very unusual time in human history. We're at an unprecedented time where technology is advancing many, many times faster than academic thinkers can consider it and that government regulators can respond to it. And that's really why comparisons with older technologies like physical prosthetics, such as the steam locomotive in lieu of horse-drawn carriages, those don't really apply because instead of taking decades and entire careers to roll out, artificial intelligence and machine learning are expanding by leaps and bounds every single day. Just look at the profound impact of programs like AlphaFold on the ability to fold proteins and design new drugs, reducing the time required by a factor of as much as 10,000, one ten thousandth of the amount of time, and you get a sense of what artificial intelligence and machine learning have in store for the future. Yeah, the speed of progress, you know, certainly in artificial intelligence in the last 10 or so years has been quite incredible. I mean, you know, human fallibility is the beginning of the story of Genesis, of course. I mean, I don't know whether I'm bark, starting to bark up the wrong tree here, but a good nudge, by the way, doesn't compel action or reduce free will. But as technology improves and devices, you know, as I said, know more about us, I fear we risk turning into computer-generated beings, losing the sort of the randomness and the variability of what it means to be human. I mean, am I going too far? You're not going too far to raise that risk, but take heart, Daniel. It is possible to live in partnership with AI in a way that takes maximum advantage of the incredible opportunities afforded by AI and also provides maximum benefit to human beings and takes maximum of benefits of human beings. The issue is we need to pressure our legislators. We need to pressure our business leaders. We need to pressure our academic thought leaders to keep pace with the remarkably rapid pace of AI in decisions that they make in order to keep it safe and hugely beneficial to humankind, which it can be. Well, I am more than happy and comfortable to take heart from you, Dave. So that's a good move towards us wrapping up this conversation. But as as a last question, as you personally grow yourself, how have you changed your approach over time? What are you doing better now? And how do you carry learning from one project to another? I think whether we're talking about our careers or about our life journeys, I think we all need to return to what our high school teacher used to say to us, our high school English teacher used to say to us, which is, Don't just think about what it is. Think about what it means. It's terribly important, even if it's uncomfortable, because we could always do things better. It's terribly important to be honest and unsentimental in our reflections and our recollections of what we've done. So I've had some really tough times in my career, Daniel. Anyone who is an engineer or leading a team of engineers on very complex programs has scar tissue to show. And I think what I'm most proud of is this. With the help of an external, an informal, but consistent external advisory board that I've put together, what I can tell you is I certainly make mistakes. I don't know anyone who's done something notable who hasn't made mistakes, but I really don't make those same mistakes twice. And that's because my external advisors, one of whom is in high tech, one of whom is in HR, They force me to look honestly and unsentimentally and completely truthfully at things that have gone well and things that are not going well on my programs, in my leadership style, in my career at large, in my life at large, and to ask myself what I can do better next time. I know that sounds relatively trite, but the fact is 
without an honest and unsentimental assessment of what's happened and where you've already been, you simply can never make things better for yourself or for the world around you. I've heard this concept before, the idea of having one's own personal advisory board. If that's what you're referring to, I think that's really cool. I think perhaps it's a rather idealized position, the idea that one has a sufficiently potent and thoughtful network that one can turn to. But I think if anyone could try and recreate that in some form, just have a couple of objective sources of support around one beyond one's immediate family, I think there's a huge amount of value to have that to lean upon through life's ups and downs. Asking is the most intimidating part of this. But I think our listeners will find if they ask people to be part of an informal advisory board for them, the answer is almost always yes. And sometimes you get incredible inspiration and incredible value from unexpected areas. One of the people who is on my external advisory board is a human resources and e-learning specialist. He runs an e-learning business down in Los Angeles. Well, on the surface, that has very little to do for a guy who makes a living on new venture creation and new venture investing for large corporations. But I can't tell you how valuable his counsel has been to me. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, before we close, shall we do a few quick fire questions to round off? Let's do it. Is the right answer. Brilliant. Right. What is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Helped me to understand when I'm wrong. Who in particular? I can always count on my wife to let me know when I'm doing something that's wrongheaded. You know, I have two sons in their early 20s, and I really appreciate it when, in a very nice way, they tell me, look, Dad, I don't think you should be saying that. Yeah. I mean, by the way, talking of the advisory board, going back, I think the principle is also that when one's asking for something, whether advice or even inviting people onto this podcast, if you do it in the right way, more often than not, people are quite flattered to be asked for their opinion and insights. I think that's always worth bearing in mind when one is a little intimidated about the thought of asking for something. Let's go to the second question. What is your most powerful memory? I know this sounds very cliche, Daniel, but my most powerful memory wait for it, is, yes, my two sons being born. I cannot imagine a more moving experience than that. I really can't. Yeah. I remember holding my baby daughter in my arms when she was sort of 30 seconds old, and I was very curious beforehand what the emotion would be like. I remember being, it was rather sort of surreal. One was so sort of struck by the reality of a, holy crap, this is it. It's happened. And all the sort of the preamble and the anticipation was over, and there one was holding this thing which one was now fully responsible for. It was quite daunting. It's difficult to put into words, that bundle of emotions. Look, I always knew I wanted kids because I was very close to my sister's two sons and daughter. She had children before I did. And I'd hold them when they were little. And then when I was done holding them, I'd just sort of hand them back to her. When my son was born, I held him. And the doctors, he was healthy. And so the doctors and nurse turned away and they were packing up the equipment and stuff. And I held him for a while. And then my arms started to get tired. And I thought, okay, well, who's going to take the baby? And then I realized, no, 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 no. That's, That's not the game here. Yeah, that's about exactly it. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Before gap years were a thing, I took a gap year after university. I spent a year working in Japan. The money was good, and I made enough to spend an additional year traveling around the world. My explicit goal wasn't to have fun. Look, a few years back, we and two other families took a trip to Kauai. The explicit goal there was to have fun, right? I went on a journey to learn about the human condition. And I really made a point of writing my observations and my insights and so on. And I'll tell you, that year, strangely, has made me a lot of who I am today. 
Oh, cool. Now, which book do you gift most regularly? It sounds a little obscure, but there's a book by Julian Barnes called The Sense of an Ending. I'm actually a member of a book club, and I insisted that we read it. And I often gift it to people either in hardback or in Kindle, because I think it's a fabulous book, because it covers themes that I love to think about. The uncertainty of memories and open questions around creating a narrative around your life. I shall add it to my Kindle wish list, which yeah. is an ever-growing list of books. Which Let me I know what you think get. when you read it one day. Yeah, absolutely. We will certainly do right. Penultimately, what's your Desert Island music? My Desert Island music would be the only kind of music that I don't get sick of after a few listenings, which is a genre of music called drone ambient. No one's ever heard of the musicians. They've got great names, like A Winged Symphony for the Sullen. What it is, is Brian Eno-style fabulous ambient music that I find, I don't, don't think this is true for everybody, but that I find heightens my sense of, of awareness and focus and creativity. So if I had only one type of music to play, it would be my slacker station that plays ambient drone. And I guess if you happen to be deserted on a desert island, having music which provoked your sense of uh, creativity and focus might be quite useful. So <laughs> I, shall, I shall check it out. Especially if listening to ambient drone music got me off the island at some point, helped me figure out how to oh, craft or something. Oh. That would be great, you know? If I was busy listening to heavy metal, which you know, I like listening to in the gym sometimes, I'd just be banging my head and wouldn't be focused enough on survival. Yeah. Right. Now, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? I'm lucky enough to live on the San Francisco Peninsula. Most of the year, you can bike, you can hike. And so I have people that I'm out with every week. I have a buddy that lives in Palo Alto, and we go biking in the hills every weekend. I have another friend, and we go hiking every weekend. The other interesting piece of my life is this. A lot of our friends are about our age. We're empty nesters. That is, our sons have both moved to New York, actually. And so it's almost like a return to college lifestyle. We have so many people staying over having slumber parties, and we have so many dinners, almost like rotating dinners with all the neighbors in our community, because the community where we live in Mountain View is really social. And it's just incredibly fun. It's like, in a different form, a return to those college days where you had a lot more flexibility, and somebody was always sleeping over, somebody was always staying with you if you lived in a destination location, you know, having a lot of really fun group meals, cooking together. That's a lot of my life these days, and it's a really fun and unexpected new life stage for me. Well, well you've earned it, and I hope now at least you can afford a half-decent bottle of wine than uh, 30 years ago on the college campus. Could we afford a half-decent bottle of wine? Probably. Does my miserliness prevent us from buying a good bottle of wine? Absolutely. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, on that note, there we shall end for now. Really, what a huge pleasure it's been talking with you these last few weeks. And in the hope that it's been some fun for you as well, what have you enjoyed the most? It's fabulous to answer questions like these. I wish everybody had a chance to answer questions like these because work today, no matter what you do, is often all-consuming, and you just get buried in the details of delivery and in the details of the grinding operation that you're part of. And it's fabulous to set some time aside and really focus in on honest responses to unexpected questions like these. So I've really enjoyed this. Oh, fantastic. Well, I want to leave you with the words of Orson Welles, who said, don't give them what they want, give them what they never dreamed was possible. And last word to you, Dave, on that sentiment. 
in response to your Orson Welles quote, I think that meeting people where they're at, whether it's friends or children or work associates, clients, is terribly important. And to quote Snoop Dogg, got to give them what they want. Wonderful being with you, Dave. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Daniel. I'm sorry this is over. I want to talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Let's set up more of these. We will set up more of it. That's the next step. Till next time, guys. Next time on A Load of BS, I welcome Mother Superior in nipple tassels. Otherwise known as behavioural scientist Patrick Fagan. So tune in to find out firstly where this nickname comes from and listen to how Patrick takes psychological academia and applies it to business. So have your notepad at the ready for lots of tips and tricks. Now, if you like a load of BS, please do share with a friend, share it on social media, and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be very well, and bye for now.